Hey, you know, mother-in-laws are famous for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons they're famous is because of all the jokes that people tell, like this one. A guy who was nagged and pestered, his son-in-law decided to buy his mother-in-law a cemetery plot as a birthday gift. The next birthday came, but this year he didn't buy her anything at all. And so the mother-in-law was upset, and she asked the son-in-law why he had forgotten her birthday this year. The angry son-in-law responded, I didn't forget, you still haven't used what I gave you last year. Or this one, an office executive says, sir, can I have a day off next week to visit my mother-in-law? And the boss says, certainly not. And the executive says, thank you so much, sir. I knew you'd be understanding. <laughs> Listen, I had a great mother-in-law. In fact, a great mother-in-law and father-in-law. I was really blessed. Wonderful people. They've gone on to be with the Lord now, but they were wonderful, wonderful people. I was really blessed to have them. But these jokes are out there because uh, sometimes it's just really hard <laughs> to get along with everybody, and kind of especially our in-laws at times. Uh, we've been following the story of Jacob through the book of Genesis after deceiving his father and stealing his brother's birthright and inheritance, if you remember. Uh, he needed to move away because his brother wanted to kill him. And he also needed to find a wife uh, that, his parents, that his parents approved of, which was not a local girl. And so he goes away to his uncle's house, makes a deal uh, to work for his uncle for seven years, in exchange for his beautiful daughter, Rachel, the younger daughter. After working the seven years, uh, Jacob uh, consummates his marriage only to find out that his father-in-law had deceived him, much in the same way he, how he had deceived his father, by sneaking in his other daughter, his older, not-so-pretty daughter, Leah. So Jacob has to work for another seven years, to be married to the beautiful daughter, Rachel. In fact, I don't know if you've heard, but archaeologists have actually uncovered pictures of uh, Leah and uh, Rachel. And so uh, Rachel, the very beautiful daughter, we actually have those pictures here. That's Rachel, the very uh, beautiful daughter. And then Leah, the not-so-pretty daughter, uh, is there. And so uh, you can see what Jacob was, (laughs) you know, it makes it clear what Jacob was thinking there. So Jacob has completed the 14 years and had both of these wives and through this crazy dysfunctional family. We saw last week, in fact, Pastor Derek did a really great job last week. He explained the kind of the baby battle that took place and how uh, now Jacob has 11 sons. He actually had 12 total, but right at this point in time, he only had 11 sons by his two wives and their maidservants. And he took us through that process last week. If you missed that, uh, just like all of our sermons, past sermons, you can see them on fogkc.com on our website, or I think you've got a connection uh, there on the Fog app. Uh, But he took us through kind of the baby battle. They were battling to see who could have sons the fastest and the most and so we have uh, Leah and Rachel uh, having sons along with their and they both used their uh, uh, handmaidens to have sons for uh, Jacob also. Uh, Benjamin's not born at this point but we know he's born later but anyway uh, so now Jacob decides he's served Laban enough he'd like to go his own way and don't take his own family with him back to the land that God had promised him. But we're going to see today this, this family has a legacy uh, you know, all families really have a legacy. There's something they're kind of known for. And even if they're not known for it outside of the family, the family kind of knows what we're known for. And I, I talk about, a lot about a legacy and the kind of legacy that we want to leave uh, for our family. But this uh, family, unfortunately, <laughs> they're leaving a legacy of deception. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how the dysfunction continues in this family. But today we're going to see that the deception 
also continues in this family. Uh, Jacob had deceived his father uh, to steal Esau's birthright and inheritance. Laban had uh, deceived uh, Jacob in order to get rid of his older, ugly daughter. And it doesn't stop here, folks. It just keeps going on. As they continue to deceive each other and try to trick each other at almost every turn, we're going to see how this unfolds here. And at, at the end of this, we'll see that Jacob actually does finally move away from Laban. But let's get started. Uh, first thing that happens here in, in chapter 30, kind of halfway through chapter 30, is Laban and Jacob uh, try to outcon each other with a crazy contract. Look at verses uh, 25 through 30 of chapter 30 in Genesis. It says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph... Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. It's quite an offer. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock livestock has fared for me for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned but now when shall I provide for my own household also that's a pretty reasonable question that Jacob asks we see here that Laban realizes that he has been blessed because of Jacob This word divination, we don't know exactly what it's pointing to, but it points out to some kind of probably a satanic way of trying to discover the future or to figure out things from the past. Uh, It's not a godly way of of just approaching things, but but, no matter how he got there, Laban does come to the right conclusion that his life has been continually blessed because of Jacob. Then Laban says in this deed, he says, listen, I want you to stay and take care of my stuff because you're doing so good. I'll pay you whatever you ask. Now, listen, when a guy has already deceived you and pawned off his less pretty daughter on you and tricked you that way, uh, who really believes he's going to pay him whatever he asks? I mean, this is something he says, but nobody in their right mind really would believe it. So Jacob confirms that Laban had very little before he got there, but now he's very wealthy. He says, I want to remind you, you know, before I got here, you didn't have much. Uh, so God has blessed you because of me, and it's really because of me that all of this is here. So then Jacob asks, so when do I get to provide for myself and my family? That's a good question to ask. Every man should be asking that question. How do I do this? How do I provide for my family well? So here is their agreement that they come to. We're not going to read all the passage today. Uh, If you want to go back today or sometime this week and read the last half of chapter 30 and all of 31, you can read all the details in there. But let me just talk you through it a little bit. So Jacob says, listen, if you're willing to let me go, I will pasture your flock a little while longer, which actually comes out to be six years. If at the end you will give me all of the spotted and speckled goats and sheep and the black lambs that are in your herd. If you'll give me those, I'll, I'll agree to, to look after your herd for a little while longer. Now, I don't know if you know much about goats. I've learned more about goats and sheep this week than I ever thought I would know. Uh, but goats uh, apparently almost always are one color. They're hardly ever speckled, and they are hardly ever some kind of stripes in goats. 
and sheep uh, are mostly all white. Uh, they are rarely speckled and are rare to be black, uh, like black, you know, black sheep of the family. That's uh, where that comes from. These are recessive genes, and they produce only at most about 25%. So while every goat and every sheep holds this recessive gene, it only comes out about at most every 25%. So what, what uh, Jacob's saying here is listen, at the end of this thing, if you'll give me, which we both think is going to be probably about 25% of the herd, I'll continue to work for you and bless you. Well, Laban thinks that's a great deal. He thinks it's a great deal. In fact, Laban kind of thinks to himself, here's one more chance to outsmart my not-so-smart son-in-law, and if he agrees, I'm going to take him for everything I can. Here's what happens. He agrees to the terms, but before Jacob can take over, Laban actually has his own sons remove all the spotted goats and sheep and the black lambs from his herd, and he gives them to his sons to take three days away so that they can't influence the population. Now, at the time, they believed that spotted goats produce spotted goats and black lambs produce black lambs. It's not true. Uh, in fact, if you look, uh, because this is a recessive gene, gene in all goats and lambs, every lamb has a recessive gene to be black. And so about 25%, like I said, will turn out black. Even if you have two white sheep mate, that is a 25% chance of being a black lamb uh, being born from that. Uh, so even though this is not really true, at this time Laban thinks, I'm going to take all the ones away from him that he really needs to actually get any things, and I'm going to, you know, basically take him one more time. But once Jacob takes over, he obviously realizes, hey, where did all the black sheep go? Where are all the spotted goats? They're gone. And so he realizes what Laban has done, and he realizes that they're gone. And so he decides to take matters into his own hands to outcon the con, and he has this plan to influence the outcome of the herd. Here's what he does. He has three things that he's going to do. One, he takes some sticks and he peels them uh, to, to produce some white areas so that they look kind of speckled, almost like you would, uh, I don't know how my wife, you know, takes a cucumber and just does like, I don't know why you don't peel the whole cucumber. That doesn't make any sense to me. He just, just peels like strips of it, you know. And, and so that's what he did. And then he places these into uh, the trough where the goats and the lambs would drink. His thinking was, listen, if they, if they look at spotted things, they'll have spotted kids. Which means, ladies, if you're pregnant, be very careful about the things that you read or look at. Uh, you might have a kid. That, well, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense at all. But that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to influence the color of the birth of lambs and goats by making them look at things. And he put them in their troughs because that's not only where they drank, but it's also where they bred. Uh, once some were being born that were black or spotted, he would turn the single-color goats uh, uh, to one direction, and he would turn them facing the sheep uh, that were black and the goats that were spotted so that if they looked at them long enough, they would produce children just like them. That's quite a strategy. Uh, and then the third thing he did was, uh, he, as he began to, as he you know, went through the process and began to have uh, kids here, um, he began to separate the weak 
from the strong animals and he bred the strong animals with the ones that were already spotted in black to hopefully produce more like that and he bred the weaker ones and the sickly ones with the single color and the white so that his flock would enlarge with the best and the strongest animals and Laban's would only contain the sick and the weaker ones. Guess what? Lo and behold, it worked. It worked. Well, it didn't work, but it did work. In other words, the outcome was exactly what Laban wanted to happen, but it didn't come because a goat looked at a spotted thing in a trough. Now, we know enough about science now to know that that those things that he did have actually uh, no scientific, um, even even an inclination of of ways to be um, just positive. They just couldn't do it. But uh, God blessed him anyway. Jacob is continuing to prosper while Laban's flock gets weaker and smaller. So then what does Jacob decide to do? Now he's got this wonderful herd. He's got all these animals. He decides to return to the land that God had promised him. And it wasn't just because he's now wealthy and he's got some stuff. It was because God told him. Look at Genesis chapter 31, verse 1 through 3. It says, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will bless you. So Laban and his sons were not looking favorably on Jacob at all. Then God spoke to Jacob and said, return to the land where your family is. And Jacob decides to be obedient to what God had told him. And I think it's really interesting that it doesn't appear that there's any time here. Basically, God tells him to go, and Jacob's decision is to go immediately. I think that's a lesson for us. I think it's a lesson for us. When God speaks to us, when God speaks to our heart and, and, and causes us to believe he's influencing us some way, we should respond to that immediately. We shouldn't wait. We shouldn't have to work things out. We should just respond to what God's asking us to do. So Jacob tells his wives, which of course are Laban's daughters, that they are leaving. And he tells them that he has served their father faithfully, even though Laban has changed his wages and the deal 10 times. In other words, uh, through this whole six-year process, Laban has continued to deceive uh, uh, Jacob. He's changed the deal, and it says 10 times. Uh, so, so Jacob's kind of breaking the news to his uh, wives that they're leaving their father. Uh, he tells them about a dream where God spoke to him and made the flock bear whatever Laban agreed to at the time in order to take Laban's flock away and give it to Jacob. So when Laban switched the rules, God switched the birthing. So in other words, if Laban came to Jacob and says, hey, listen, you're just producing way too many black sheep. Uh, I don't, you're no longer going to be spotted goats, but they're going to be one antlered goat with one pink eye and one blue eye. That's what you get. Uh, all of a sudden, they started being whatever Laban said that you could have. God's just doing this to help uh, bless Jacob and take Laban's uh, flock away from him and, and basically give it to Jacob. And so that's what was going on. Leah and Rachel have no love lost for their father at all. They respond by saying this to Jacob. They say, basically, what do we care? 
daddy sold us to get you to work for him. That's our father. Everything he had now belongs to us anyway. So fine, let's go. But instead of just telling Laban they were going, instead of Jacob manning up and saying, Laban, I worked for you another six years. Uh, I'm taking my wives and your grandchildren and my flock and I'm leaving. Instead of doing that, what does he do? Jacob and his family sneak away from Laban and his family. Look what it says in verses 17 through 21. So, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. Another deception. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob sneaks away and he tricks Laban by not telling him in a sense. Rachel, she apparently wants to get in on the deception act. She's kind of probably feeling left out. So she steals all of daddy's gods which are probably some kind of small uh, portable idols of some kind. We don't know exactly what they were, but she obviously had to be able to uh, grab them, hang on to them, pack them, and all of that kind of thing. Man, deception is just truly this family's legacy. I mean, it's what they do. It's what they do to one another. You've had uh, Jacob deceiving Laban. You've had Laban deceiving Jacob. And now you've got Jacob's wife, Rachel, Laban's daughter, uh, deceiving her father. And on and on it goes. So they find out, uh, Laban finds out after three days of shearing sheep, he comes back and uh, sees that Jacob and his daughters and his grandchildren and all of their stuff is gone. He's not having any of this. He's not happy at all, and he's going to do something about it. So what does he do? Laban pursues Jacob with his kinsmen. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled... He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Laban rounds up all the able-bodied men in his household to pursue Jacob and to do him harm for again deceiving him. That's his plan. And so virtually his sons, his grandsons, uh, his servants, every man that can carry and hold a weapon is, is called to go and all of the kinsmen go together uh, to pursue Jacob and to cause him harm. That's the plan. But luckily, luckily, God got to him before they caught up with Jacob and God told him in a dream not to do Jacob any harm or even speak in a foul or evil way towards him. So when Laban finally catches up with Jacob, he says, this is a, re a really just ridiculous conversation that goes on. Uh, a, a lot of uh, just words that wouldn't be used normally. Uh, some really ridiculous things that he perceived in his own mind without any evidence. But here's what happens. He basically talks to Jacob and he says, listen, why did you sneak off as though you were kidnapping my daughters by force? Well, Jacob didn't do that. Uh, he never even thought about doing that. 
In fact, if you want to really uh, know the truth, Laban sold his daughters to him to get him to work for him. And now he accuses him of kidnapping. And then Laban says, listen, why did you just tell me? I would have loved to have thrown you a big party before you left. Now, who believes that? He had just talked him into staying another six years. He's basically conned him into serving him 20 years. And he said, listen, if you would have just told me you wanted to leave, I'd have thrown a big party. It would have been like a big wedding reception, and we would have said goodbye. Well, nobody believes that at all. And then he says, and by the way, I could do you harm, but your God told me not to. Now, it's very rare that God makes his presence that known to someone who is not a believer, to someone who is uh, worshiping false idols. But God makes it clear to protect Jacob he makes it clear to Laban not to harm Jacob. And then, and then Laban says one more thing. And oh yeah, why did you steal my gods? Uh, by the way, if anybody can steal your God, you need to switch gods, okay? That's just a little side note there. Jacob responds with this. He says, well, I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. I thought you would force them to stay. And he says, and listen, I didn't steal anything. He doesn't realize that Rachel took these things. In fact, Jacob says something that makes it really clear that he doesn't know because he says, listen, I didn't take anything. In fact, feel free to look through all of our stuff. And if you find those stolen gods, you can kill the person that stole them. He doesn't realize that he could lose the pretty wife and just be stuck with the other one because he didn't know Rachel had them. So Laban and his men search everywhere. They search their persons, they search the tents, they search everything. Now Rachel is sitting on a camel and on top of some saddlebags that are on the camel and she tells the men that are searching, she says, I I can't get off of this camel right now because I'm on my period. So they left her alone and they didn't find the idols. She's sitting on the hidden idols, the stolen idols. She makes a lame excuse that causes them not to even look for them, and they let her off the hook. So then Jacob responds with this. So basically, what's your problem, Laban? I didn't take your idols. What's the deal? And then he ends the conversation by saying these things. And Jacob basically credits God for his prosperity. After this whole interaction between him and Laban, he just wants everybody to know, including Laban, that he gives credit to God for his prosperity. Look at verses 40 through 42. It says, there I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. At this point, Laban realizes that uh, his God had come to him, had told him to leave him alone. He again remembers that all of his blessing had come because of Jacob. He finds out basically that everything Jacob has was once his. Think about it. His daughters were once his and now they belong to Jacob. 
Uh, his grandsons who were once living under his household now are Jacob's. His flock and basically everything of great value that Laban had is now belonging to Jacob. But because of God's warning, because God came to him so clearly, he decides to do no harm to Jacob and let him go his way. We see that Jacob and Laban call a truce and go their separate ways. Look at verses 51 and 52. It says, then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap, it's a heap of, of rocks, and the pillar which I have set between you and me, this heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So we see here that uh, they basically decide to let each other go their own way. Laban goes back to his uh, home country, and uh, uh, Jacob will now take his family and his flocks uh, to the promised land. And they let each other go their own way. But they say, we're going to set this pillar up here, this marker, so that you promise to never come across this marker towards us to do us harm, and you promise not to come towards us, and we'll promise not to come towards you. So it's a, really a marker for both sides. And they both agree to this. They call a truce, and that's kind of the end of the story and the end of the interaction between Laban and uh, Jacob. Now we look at these Bible stories and we see uh, the things that go on and we go, well, how does any of this apply to me? What is in here that helps me or, you know, I'm not a shepherd. I'm not going to be uh, conning people out of their goats or their sheep. Uh, what, what here really applies to me? Well, I, there are several things, but I want to point out three things that I think are really important for us today. One is this, never replace dependence on God with human schemes. And folks, we do it all the time. Nothing Jacob tried to do with Laban's flock really would have worked on its own. From a scientific perspective, it was ridiculous. It only worked because God made it so. It only worked because God was going to bless him. And by the way, he would have blessed him anyway, whether or not he had spotted sticks in the trough or not, he was going to bless him. I think sometimes we uh, try desperately to control all of the circumstances of our own life. One of the things that's missing here in this passage is Jacob never turns and says, God, what would you have me do? God, look what Laban is doing to me. Uh, God, help me. Uh, God, bless me in spite of Laban trying to take advantage of me. He never once calls on God and for God's help uh, to, to help him. And I would say it's very common for us when we get into a predicament, when we have a, a circumstance that we can't control, we generally try to do everything possible ourselves. And then when we can't control it anymore and we get desperate, that's when we turn to God. Folks, we've got to learn the practice of turning to God first. We've got to learn the practice of saying, God, I don't even know what's going on here yet, but I still trust you. I believe you have my best interest at heart. I believe you're trying to conform me into an image of Christ and I, I'm just, I'm on with the program, God. We need to turn to him first and not try to, uh, you know, figure everything out ourselves. And I'm not talking about swinging this pendulum way to the extreme. Uh, listen, nobody's saying, hey, just trust God and quit your job and sit at home and wait for God to deliver some groceries to the door. That's ridiculous, okay? 
But what I am saying is, in these situations where we really need God's help, which is basically everything, we need to trust him first. And then go where he directs us. Do what he directs us to do. Not try everything ourselves, and then if God doesn't do what we want, we beg for his help. We have to depend on God at a much higher level, folks, than trying to manipulate situations ourselves. I think that's a really great uh, point of practical application here. Another one is even when your hard work pays off, acknowledge and give God credit. I know that many of you work hard. You, you, make, uh, you work hard at making good decisions. You do a lot of things, and we, we do participate in our lives, obviously. Uh, but when, when God blesses us, blesses us, it's important that we say, listen, this is what God did for me. Not, hey, look what I did. My, uh, one of my grandsons is only seven years old and he's uh, playing baseball. He's quite the uh, baseball fan and he's playing baseball. He had a game this week and he struck out his first two times uh, up at bat and man, he just does not like that at all. No seven-year-old does, uh, but he really hates it. And the third time up, he got up and he really smacked the ball hard. And he ran to first and even got to run to second, which is kind of rare in their uh, machine pitch league. He ran to second and he got to second and he did this. <laughs> now, I don't know if he was really giving God credit yet or not. I don't know exactly what he probably just saw it on ESPN. Who knows what he was doing? Uh, but I, I kind of liked uh, the attitude that he's going, hey, listen, I got here because God helped me to do what I'm going to do. Now, now, listen, I, I know that we have a tendency to think sometimes, yeah, but I work really hard. I, I did things without God's help. I have accomplished things. I'm a doctor. I, I went to school for eight years. I put in a lot of energy and effort and time. I did that. Really? Who gave you your doctor brain? I mean, when you think about it, every single thing that we point to and say, look what I did, if you go backwards long enough, we only got to that place and were able to be blessed that way because somebody somewhere was blessed by God. Oh, I, I went to college and, and well, really, who gave you your parents? I mean, if you think about it, every single thing that's good in our lives, folks, has come because of God's blessing. Now, yes, he uses our effort uh, to help bless us at times. But even when he blesses our effort, it's still important for us to, in our hearts, to just do a little, okay? And say, God, I, I was able to accomplish this because of your blessing and because of your help. And not become self-sufficient. Uh, it's one thing to be responsible and take care of ourselves. It's another thing to be self-sufficient and not need God, that is a foolish place to be. And the last thing I want you to see today is that it's important for us to be at peace with everyone if you can. And those three words at the end are very important, uh, if you can. And I want to point out, uh, I, I use universal rule number one, Michael Porter's universal rule number one. I share it with everybody that I counsel, everybody that I advise, everybody that wants to come to me for any kind of help at all. I always explain to them uh, universal rule number one, which is this. Uh, you can't control anybody on the planet but yourself and barely that. Okay? In fact, God even recognizes this principle because he tells us, he never tells us to be at peace with everyone. We can't be at peace with everyone. You can't control how other people are going to respond to you. You can only control how you respond to them. In fact, look what it says in the book of Romans. 
says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The Bible never says anywhere, be, it, be peaceable with all. Be at peace with everybody. Folks, there, there are some people that just aren't going to like you. There are going to be some people that hate you because of your beliefs or because of your hair color or the way you walk or the way you talk or what, whatever reason they're not going to hate you. They're just going to hate you. You can't control that. You can't do anything about that. What you can do is control your response to that. And what God is saying here is, listen, as much as it depends on you, as much as you can control things from your side, be at peace with everybody, even your in-laws. Be at peace with everyone. Folks, there are people in our lives that we're not at peace with. There are people in our lives that we aren't at peace with because of us. And we need to make those things right. We need to be the ones to reach out. We need to be the ones to swallow our pride and say, listen, if I offended you, I apologize. Whatever you need to say to him that's, that's appropriate. We need to be the ones to reach out and be the peacemakers. And if they bite the hand when you reach it out, then that, so be it. You can't make them like you. You can't make them respond correctly. But we can control ourselves. Folks, this is a huge principle as Christians. Because the reality is, uh, God taught us how to do this when he made peace with us. When we have sinned, we have become God's enemy. When we have sinned against him, when we have said, God, I'm going to do what I want to do. And we thumb our nose at him and say, I'm going to do what I want because I like it better than doing what you want. We thumb our nose at him and we become God's enemy in the sense that we are contrary to what he wants and his way. But what did he do? He, he reached out to us. He reached out to us with his son, Jesus. And he said, I'm gonna make a way for you. I'm gonna make a way for you to be at peace with me. I'm gonna let my son die on a cross so that if you'll put your faith and trust in him and what he did, then I can be at peace with you. You can become my child. You can become my friend. I am reaching out to you and I'm giving you. You know what? Not everybody takes that. God follows his own advice. God is at peace with everyone as much as it's up to him because he's reached out for everyone, including you. Some people will reach that hand and take it and they'll be at peace with God and some will thumb their nose at him or bite his hand and they'll go off and do their own thing still. So all God's saying is, listen, I've modeled for you what it's like to be a peacemaker. I've modeled what it's like to be at peace with everyone as much as you can. Now you go and do the same. So I want to encourage you today, if there are people that come to your mind, uh, that's not uh, an accident. God may be speaking to your heart much in the same way that he spoke to Jacob or Laban. He may be speaking to your heart and say, hey, there's somebody you're not at peace with that really is on you. Do yourself a favor. Be at peace with them today. Reach out to them. Say, listen, as much as it's up to me, as much as I can, I want to be at peace with you. Doesn't mean you agree with them. Doesn't mean you, you become their doormat. 
It just means, I want to be at peace with you. I don't want to be fighting with you. I don't want to be warring with you. For some of these, that's maybe somebody at work, and for some of these, it may be much like Jacob and Laban. It may be a family member, but especially them, especially them. Make peace with them. Follow God's pattern. And if you're here today and you're not yet at peace with God, give your life to him today. Be, be at peace with him first. That's the first step to being at peace with others is to be at peace with God. He'll help you be at peace with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your principles and the way that you bless our lives. God, help us to never, ever forget that every good thing in our life is because of you. God, help us to just depend on you. Help us to turn to you first instead of last. Help us to turn to you ahead of all of our schemes and all of our planning, all of our ways to get us out of trouble. God, help us to turn to you. And then, Father, thank you for being a peacemaker with us. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins, that we might be truly at peace with you. Now, God, help us to be at peace with others. Help us to swallow our pride. Help us to make the attempt and then to leave the results up to you. If we reach out to people and try to make peace with them and they refuse, God, we know that you don't require anything more of us, but you do require us to make the effort. And as much as it's up to us, be at peace with all men. God, help us to live that out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.